0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, look, y'all, it is crazy outside. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you are working a nine to five, you're probably stressed out about keeping your nine to five. If you don't have a nine to five, you're probably in the middle of trying to get a new nine to five. Or maybe you made the crazy leap to be a full time entrepreneur like me. You got the world on fire all around you. middle of elections year. A lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's absolutely nuts, right? It's nuts outside. And I could definitely see, I'll speak for me. Look for me. I know I'd be going to therapy on a regular basis. I believe in therapy. All right. Hashtag uh, black folks need therapy. Hashtag. We all need therapy. We all need it. And for me, I can say if it wasn't for therapy being like an ongoing maintenance tool in my toolkit to help me stay level and Help me realize that I'm okay. Everything around me is okay. Here's what I can control. That has been critical for me. And I would hope that if you have thought about therapy, and if, or if you haven't thought about therapy, shoot, let's say you're like, like I ain't got time for therapy. I got, I'm too busy trying to make sure that these plates keep on spinning. I hope that you check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's completely convenient, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, keyword licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is incredible. It's very challenging to move around and find the right therapist for you. The fact that BetterHelp is providing that as just part of your experience is incredible. So find your support, get the help you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash corp today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash corp. Corp. C O R P. This episode of Living Corporate is brought to you by Blind. Blind is a trusted community of more than five million verified professionals from startups to some of the largest companies in the world, like Amazon, Deloitte, Ernst Young, Goldman Sachs, Google, J P Morgan, Meta, and more. Blind's mission of transparency seeks to break down professional barriers and silos at work, so that you can make productive change and advance your career. It's a safe space to ask questions and get the real-time insights and perspectives from people who know what you've been through. On Blind, you can connect and have honest discussions about everything from compensation, company culture, performance reviews, promotions, and more. You can also join your exclusive private company channel to chat with your coworkers about company policies and what's really going on at work. And because it's anonymous, you can be honest and trust what you read on Blind. Download and install Blind from the App Store or visit teamblind.com to get access to the latest salary, company reviews, and interview experiences. From thousands of companies worldwide What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Listen, uh, every now and then, someone on social media will post like some merch from Living Corporate's shop, and people go, What? I didn't know y'all had merch? What's going on? Like, I didn't even see that. I didn't even know. Clearly, that's on us. We don't promote Living Corporate's merch enough. But yes, we have hoodies, tanks, shirts, onesies, hats, masks, mugs, pins. You know what I mean? Uh, with incredible catchphrases, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't encourage you to check out livingcorporate.shop or just go to the website, living-corporate.com, click the little link for the shop, right? We'll have the link in the show notes for you to go ahead and check it out. Again, it's about to be hoodie season for a lot of y'all. I live in Houston, so it's not hoodie season over here. It's still ridiculously hot. I didn't even realize y'all, like last week, it was like 95 degrees. And I'm over here looking up and I'm not, I'm just not realizing it's about to be September and it's still that hot over here. Sheesh. Anyway, listen. Um, it's definitely probably hoodie season for a lot of y'all. Because I know we have folks who be listening, y'all be on the coasts. So it's hoodie time. So enjoy. Get a hoodie. Really, and look, they're all really re- reasonably priced. Because sometimes, you know, the these podcasts or like media companies, they'll have merch, but it'll be priced up like $70 for a hoodie. That's not what it is. Like, we're literally. We price them at a point to encourage you just to go ahead and cop, right? Cop a hoodie, take a picture, tag Living Corporate. We might have something for you. And um, listen, I'm excited about the conversation that we have today on the books with Celeste Warren. Celeste Warren is an author, a, a senior executive. And we talk a lot of, about a lot of different things, right? You can probably get an idea of what we're talking about based on the title of this pod. So I'm not going to really give too much more away. I do give away some tea about a podcast uh, interview that you're never going to hear on this network. And I talk about why that is in our conversation. With that being said, before we get into the discussion with Celeste, we're going to take a break. We'll get into that and then you'll see me right back here. All right. See you in a minute. When you're building a culture of belonging, every word counts. That's why Textio brings the world's most advanced language insights into your hiring and employer brand content. Our industry-leading approach to artificial intelligence and machine learning provides the tools needed to find more diverse candidates. In short, Textio builds more equitable workspaces, guiding businesses and writing more inclusive job posts. And we're building on that success by bringing even more products to the market for all people who share our belief that language matters. Words have power, and at Textio, we harness that power to increase the access and availability of value-driven work for everyone. Living Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Doximity helps over 2 million medical professionals. We are the largest medical network that includes over 80% of physicians And over 50% of physician assistants and nurse practitioners, we don't take that responsibility lightly and committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. If you want to learn more about Doximity, check out your app store at D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. That's D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y.
1: Welcome back to the Workplace Democracy podcast segment brought to you by the Living Corporate Network. I'm your host, Tyra Robinson, an attorney licensed to practice in the state of Maryland. Thanks so much for tuning in again to the podcast segment that informs you about strategies to protect your rights as a professional employee. So in the first couple of episodes, we covered law specifically under the jurisdiction of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But in this episode, we'll talk about general employee protections and strategies to protect your rights. Employees have various rights across the United States. Some are based in federal law, others are based in state, local, or municipal law. Depending on your type of employment, you may have different types of rights. The following strategies will help best position you to protect your rights as a professional employee. First, keep documents. Keep any records that your employer gives you, such as your employee offer letter, contract, financial documents, or job expectations. Second, you should also make or keep your own records. For example, make a record in writing of verbal discussions had, such as through summary emails to the relevant parties if necessary. You can also create a personal work log that you update any time that an event happens. Write down the details of any work incident that could be considered discrimination or harassment and everything leading up to that event, including the parties involved, when, where, and how the event came to be, and any type of resolution if one was reached. In addition, keep a record of the days and hours that you worked and what you did on the job that day. Third, read the employee handbook and be aware of policies that may protect or that an employer could hold against you. Finally, be aware of other things that employers should not be doing. In many states, employers should not, for example, ask you to sign an overly broad non-compete agreement, forbid you from discussing salary with co-workers, forbid you from organizing, or retaliate against you for exercising your rights. And note that retaliation is covered by various employment laws, including those enforced by the EEOC. Some employment protections also start when you're a job applicant. And although job applicants have rights too, they usually don't have as many as employees. But prospective employers cannot ask prohibited questions during the hiring process, which vary depending on the state, but can include asking about your previous salary, age, marital status, religion, plans to become pregnant, and certain criminal history. As always, you should remember to check your state and local laws to see which specific protections apply to you. So let's recap. To best position yourself to protect your rights as a professional employee, you should first practice record keeping through saving any pertinent employee documents you receive when you first start work and throughout your job. Second, document through making your own paper trail and creating a personal work log with significant events. And three, be aware of your employer's policies and other workplace laws. All right, y'all. Thanks again for listening to Workplace Democracy brought to you by the Living Corporate Network and myself. I hope you'll tune in every segment to learn more about how to bring democracy to your workplace. Please understand that this podcast is only intended for educational purposes and is not a replacement for individualized legal advice. You should always seek the services of a licensed attorney who will look at the specific facts of your individual circumstance if you are contemplating legal action. Additionally, the views expressed in this podcast are my own and are not reflective of my employer.
0: This episode of Living Corporate is brought to you by Blind. Blind is a safe, trusted community of more than 5 million verified professionals. Head over to teamblind.com to get the latest insights into salaries, company reviews, and interview experiences at thousands of companies worldwide. Live in Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Doximity is committed to fostering an inclusive and diverse work environment where differences are valued, practices are equitable, and employees experience a sense of belonging that allows them to bring their full, authentic selves daily. As medicine's largest network, there's an elevated level of responsibility to everything we do. We don't take that responsibility lightly and are committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. So if you want to learn more about Doximity, go to your app store and type in D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Again, that's D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Celeste, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Listen, um, it, it's rare, it's rare that we have like black HR HR executives um, on the show. So I'm really excited to talk to you from a variety of different dimensions, to be clear. But I'm just thankful for you, to, uh, thankful that you're here. I think let's just start with like, I know that Merck is not, is your most recent uh stop, but you've been in like the people leadership, diversity, equity, inclusion, HR space for some time. Like what was your foray into this space and like why did you choose this career path?
2: Ah, Zach, that's a <laughs> that's a good question. So truth be told, when I was um in undergraduate undergraduate and even in high school, all I ever wanted to be was a reporter, sports reporter. So um, I went to school, undergraduate at the University of Kentucky. I went on a volleyball scholarship. So your girl got hops a little bit. <laughs> so I went on a volleyball scholarship, and I just was focused. My major was telecommunications. My undergrad, my minor was political science, but everything was focused on it. I had, I was um, on the campus newspaper, sports reporter. I had my own radio show, uh, campus radio show. And um, living the dream, and so graduated and went to work uh, initially at the largest radio station, um, the voice of the Kentucky Wildcats um, back back then, and and I was you know doing the reporting thing and everything for a couple of years, and little it's not known but but. 10% of the people are making 90% of the income and the other 90% are making the 10% of the income. So I was in that, that ladder where I was not making a lot of money and I got tired of writing home with my parents. Hey, rent check is due. I need some money, mom and dad. It was just embarrassing. I graduated from college. I, you know, I'm like, I want to be an adult. And, um, and I got tired of eating ramen noodles and mac and cheese. So I decided to go back to school, graduate school. And, um, my parents talked me into coming back home. My mother said, you know, look, why don't you come back home? So I'm from a small steel mill town in Western PA. So I went to um, Carnegie Mellon university in Pittsburgh to get my master's. And as I was talking to the folks, I thought, you know, I'll use, I'll use my telecom television journalism degree to, um, to go, well, let me back up. I was in radio, I said, and so I finally got my interview. After two and a half years in radio, to the, the television station. So I interviewed for the, the television station there, local television station, and got the job. They sent the contract to me, and it was just a little bit more what I was making in radio. And I was I was so despondent. I was discouraged. I was just sad. So I turned it down, and that's when I decided to go back to grad school. And so um, the guidance counsel there talked to me, and I was gonna do like uh, take my major. And then my minor in political science and do something like go to D.C. and be a campaign manager, press secretary, something like that. And um, my the guidance counselor there at Carnegie Mellon, she said, oh, my God, no, you don't want to do that. It's too unstable. You don't want to get in, into that. Why don't you try human resources? And I was like, I don't want to do that because my 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 image, my image of a of human resources was this little old lady with the, you know, passing out um applications, right? And she was like, no, no, no. There it's a whole bunch of things. She, and she told me about talent management, organizational design, learning and development, all the different pieces of it. And so I interned there in between my first and second year um of graduate school at General Foods in White Plains, New York. I had a blast the whole summer. Um, and uh it, it fit like hand the glove. And so I said, you know, You know, I remember thinking when I was in grad school, like people get paid to to do this. This is kind of I like this, you know. And so, um, so I just pursued pursued it, and I got hired at General Foods after after um, I graduated, or actually was they hired me at Christmas time. So I knew where I was going last semester of grad school, and you know that's what started my journey. But around diversity, equity, inclusion, that's been with me, ingrained in me since I was a little girl. My father was the first black teacher in the region, Western PA, um, Ohio, that region. And so I saw from him on a daily basis, growing up as a little girl, a fourth of five children, um, what it was like for him being the first, being the only. Um, And, uh, you know, it, it just was it for me, you know, sitting down at the dinner table every night was and education. My mom and dad would talk about what happened and inevitably my mom would get all mad. She was the fiery one, quiet but fiery inside our four walls of our home. And then my dad always even killed, you know, very, a lot of self-discipline, um, a deacon in the church, you know, just basically kind of, you know, knew that he had to go through those things, but he was constantly pushing for justice, pushing for equality, for not just for himself, but other teachers, black teachers that were coming behind him, and then also um, other students, you know, ac- across across the spectrum. So um, I learned a lot and it's just been ingrained in me growing up throughout my career about equality, about equity, about justice. And um, and so that's kind of how, how I ended up getting in this role. I didn't want to do this. I actually was asked a few times um, to think about you know, being a successor to, at the time, the, the the chief diversity officer. And I I always said, no, that's not something, I don't, I, I don't want to do it. And my thinking was, I was always very passionate about it. And I wasn't about to go into a role where I felt that I wasn't going to get support. I wasn't going to be able to, you know, the air coverage, be able to do what I needed to do and what I felt needed to happen in the organization for there to be change. And, um, I had a boss back then um, who basically said, "You know, look, I know how you feel." And she was a black female too, Miriam Weir, and she was a black female too. And she said, "Look, I know how you feel about this, but I need you to take, I need you to take this role. Um, we have not been making progress like we want to, and I know you're a results-oriented person, and I know you're passionate about this. And, and can you just think about it?" And at the time, Ken Fraser was our CEO. And she said, you know, I've talked to Ken about it. and He really wants you to think about taking the role and he wants to talk to you. And I th- and I thought, OK, well, here's my out because he's a busy CEO. He probably won't be able to talk to me to- for a couple of months. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I you know I'll talk to Ken <laughs> thinking it'd be a buffer. Right. And she she said, OK, she grabbed my hand, walked me over to his office. And I sat down and had this conversation with Ken. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. And and uh, here I am.
0: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I start off by saying, you know, we don't have a lot of Black HR executives on the show, uh, and you know, there's this, of course, like there's this stigma, uh, and there's also mm-hmm. just a belief. Mm-hmm. I and mean, you know, I, I'll be honest, I, I probably hold that belief as well. Even even as I think about my own career, me cutting my own teeth in HR, is that mm-hmm. HR really isn't there. Uh, for employees, and they're really there to serve mm. and really uh, mitigate, mitigate risk for the company. Yeah. Um, How long that, were you
2: in HR, Zach?
0: Yeah, so let's see here. Um, I started, I graduated in 2011, and I was an HR manager at Target. Then um, I was there for about a, a little under a year. Mm-hmm. And then I was an HR specialist for about two years. And then I was an HR business partner for about a year. Uh-huh. And then I got to change management consulting. So I was like about half my about the first third okay. of my career. I've been working for like, what, ten, eleven years? Uh-huh. So like like the first like three and a half, four years of my career, I was in uh, I was in HR. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, and so and and so it's it's interesting because again, like there is this narrative and frankly, like, almost to the point where it's like a stated just mm-hmm. reality of the corporate world that HR is not really there for the employee, and certainly not there for black folks in terms of really advocating for making sure that they actually have an outcome that is equitable or right for them. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like how do, like, what is your perspective on that? And like, what would be your counter to those, that position that yeah. you know, if your goal is to make sure that you're taken care of as an employee, that you're looked out for, that you're advocating for, that you're supported, then don't go to HR, go to your employment lawyer or go to, you know, look for another job. Like what's the, What's what's the counter to that perspective?
2: Yeah, no, Zach, and, and that is very much how a lot of employees feel. Um, and and what so I you're talking to an HR veteran for thirty plus years, and and I'm not going to lie, I've seen that in my travels of of this. And and as as HR departments are whittled, 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 headcount goes down, cost structure, everything goes down. The the model that you have to um, think about is I can't reach every employee, especially if you're with a big company like Target is a huge huge company, right? Um, uh, our company is, is 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 relatively large, and and so when you have a, a, a HR department that is, you know, one HR person for a couple thousand people, right, two three thousand people, then there's only so much you can do, and and the model that we that That you should try to HR organizations when they're in that sort of um, uh, infrastructure, you really focus on the leader and the managers to make sure that in the in the thinking of a shadow of a leader, right that they understand um, how to create an inclusive environment, how to create an empowering environment, how to create an environment where people can be productive, bring their authentic selves to work, a sense of belonging psychological safety you focus with the on the leader and the managers to be able to do that so they would create that environment for employees that they want to be there that they feel like they have advocates like they feel like that you know their bosses and their managers and their leaders are 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 trying to create that culture that they want to be a part of doesn't always work because we know that um, all of the layers of managers that exist in different organizations how you know, you just, you, you, they, you know, people, managers, they, I call it the hourglass. You have the leaders at the top that are saying, this is the vision. This is what I want. You have the employees that are saying, this is the culture that I want to see. These are the things that I'm finding you this feedback manager. How come you're not getting that up? And then all of these things are coming at the manager business plans, you know, depending on what part, discipline, what part of the organization they're in, they're getting just inundated with information. And and so they feel like okay, well, how can I do that? And so there there's there's that the hourglass is at the middle that that manager and it and it becomes sort of like a bottleneck. And so um, when I first got in this job, I used to think I take it personally and think you know you just don't care about DE&I, you know you're not getting the messages through, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you're not trying to build your DE&I capabilities. And I was talking with some other colleagues in other centers of excellence, whether that be in HR, like comp and, and all of that, or other centers of excellence. So, for example, in manufacturing, quality and safety, <clears throat> and and they said, you know, Celeste, it's not it's not just DE and I. So, if, so I used to be the head of HR for our manufacturing division. So, I'll give you an example: the the shift supervisors, for example, they have quality coming at them, they have compliance coming at them, they have they got to get their financials. They got to get the IT systems. They have to make sure they're following the safety protocols. They have to make sure they understand what the production, how many, how many this they got to get out the door. They have to do all of these different things, regulations, they're all coming at them. And then we come at them with, okay, and this is what we want you to do in the people space. And they're like, okay, I'm I'm overload, right? And so I'm not saying it as an excuse because, hey, you asked to be in the job. You wanted to be a manager. So put on, put on your big boy pants and let's go. But um, but but uh, but it's they're all coming at them and and it didn't really dawn on me until I heard from other colleagues that are in those similar type COE uh, centers of excellence type roles that we have the same problem too and everybody's trying to get at these managers with information so then I said you know well how do we get at them in their space right so if I am a manager in on the shop floor what does that environment look like? How do I get to them? Um, if I'm a sales district sales manager and I'm riding with my reps, sales reps in a car, how do I get it? So, so you have to get them the information in their environment. And that's kind of how we, how we kind of turn, we're still working on it. We're not experts at it at all, but we're still working on that. I think every, every company is, but I would say that there, there is that is a perception, and in some cases, it's a reality for lots of employees around the globe that they feel like, hey, the HR people they're only for the manager because when we switched to this model, when we, you know, we had a lot of layoffs and stuff in the '90s and, and early 2000s of HR people. Um, when we switched to the model of we got to really focus on building the skills and capabilities of the managers and leaders, then it came, it the 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 rhetoric and the thinking of the employee was oh, HR only cares about the manager and they only defend the manager and the leader. So it's no, I don't need to go to, uh, it's not going to help for me going to the HR person because they only care about defending the manager. And then it became, okay, when I got into this COE, working with HR business partners, especially and those client facing, so your recruiters and your staff recruiting and staffing, and those people that are interfacing with the managers and leaders, helping to build their capabilities around what that looks like, how you you still, you know, how you need to really focus on making sure the manager is creating that that environment for their 10, 15 people on their teams of belonging and psychological safety. So we started a lot of training on psychological safety, bold inclusive conversations from the Winters group, um, and other things. And and a lot of like um learning on your own e-learning because we have tens of thousands of managers and getting the information to them so i can i absolutely know that 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 is out there and and so we just have to continue to keep working it because you know there, in a lot of companies most companies hr there's not a one for one hr person for per employee and that's sort of the dilemma that that happens but but we have to keep working on it i know there are uh DE&I leaders that um, they either report into HR, many of them report into the CHRO, some of them report into the CEO, and many others report into like a line leader, like a CEO, chief operating officer, or chief administration officer. And I've seen <clears throat> people always ask me, well, what's the best model? Like, you know, shouldn't all of the DE&I leaders report into the CEO, or shouldn't all of them report here or there? And really, it's about, um, I think, it, you know, the, the layer in the organization. So you you don't want a chief diversity officer that's three, four, five layers into the organization. That's not going to work, right? But if they are in the C-suite, it's about access, access to the CEO, access to you know the Comp and Benny board, um, access to the senior leaders. So you're able to drive the change that you need to. And for me, it's agnostic of who I report into. It's about how do I get my job done and who is providing me with the air coverage and, and the am I linked lockstep with the CEO as he's delivering, he or she are delivering their messages to the organization. So, you know, that's basically kind of my thought. And yes, Zach, that that feeling is has always been there, and so we have to, as HR pr- practitioners, my colleagues who are HR practitioners and, and leaders, they have to make sure that they're thinking about the employee and 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 who their customer is, because you know, you're you're if you treat the employee as a customer, you can never go wrong.
0: You know, you said a lot of things there. Mm-hmm. First of all, thank you so much. Incredible insights. Um, shout out to the winners group. shout out to mary francis winner she's actually a mentor of mine yeah so i'm a huge huge fan of the winners group and everything they got going on um and then you know i, I think i want to continue you talked a little bit about your experience the fact that you've been in this space for about 30 years mm-hmm. or so um around there and i know that of like a couple of years ago when George ford was murdered on camera all of a sudden a bunch of white folks came together and said, oh, racism is bad. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh, man, like, we've never seen anything like this before. But I think about people who are, like, Gen Xers and things of like that, like, folks who are of older generations. Like, this is not the first time we've seen, like, you know, massive response to, um, like, televised racial tragedies or tra- televised racial um, uh, brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious, like, how does... Um, the the global response or the, the this the the um, countrywide response to George Floyd differ from the beating of Rodney King mm-hmm. right and other Trayvon similar Trayvon Martin and Trayvon Martin like like what about like from from what you've seen as an executive like do you feel like the response is falling in line with like historical patterns of what you've observed or is there was there something unique about this particular uh, moment relative to other things that you've seen?
2: I think it was unique or different in a couple of ways. One, the world had no choice but to look at it. George Floyd, we were, we were shuttered in place in the midst of a pandemic that no one in this generation or previous generations had seen to the effect that we we are linked to the outside world was our it was technology? It was social media. It was our televisions and, and the news, and it was all in the news. So so it was a time where you know you, it, we were we were still. It wasn't people jumping on trains, planes, and automobiles in their busy lives, r- ripping and running back and forth to work, commuting. There was none of that. So there was a a stillness. That was happening in the world and you had no choice because your connection to the outside world was through technology and it was all over technology. You couldn't miss it. Um, Secondly, the arrogance by which. The police officer was kneeling and sitting on the neck of George Floyd for those eight long minutes. Staring at the girl, the young lady who was had the camera and the phone, staring at it as if to say, what are you going to do about it? We've been getting away with this for years and years. And when I say we, I don't mean just police. I mean, I'm talking systemically right now. We've been getting, getting, getting away with this. This is the way it is and has been for centuries. What are you going to do about it? Staring straight into the crowd. And, and I mean, for me, that that was the epitome of of how, how it felt. And that that arrogance, that superiority, that privilege, that 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 feel that not not even a feeling, a coldness towards not just George Floyd, the person he was killing, but towards our whole race. And that's kind of how it it, it was, it, it, it was. And so you had the cry out, you had, you know, the people who, you know, just were oblivious to it or didn't want to see it or, you know, whatever their reasoning was, you had no choice but to open your eyes and look and see. And so with that came the outcries of solidarity, all of the different things that we saw at that point. And and you know it's basically you have to turn those cries of solidarity into action, sustainable change. And I think in some cases, you know, if you look a year year out, two years out um, from that, um, some companies have they put they put commitments in place and they have stayed to them. They they have made um, changes within their organizations and many others it was lip service you know and it was basically okay let's get this statement out in, in in you know in june and and make sure that people know that we're we're down and we're for the cause and we're woke and we're all of this but then didn't didn't do anything some people they hire chief diversity officers didn't give them a budget didn't give them you know resources And it was only a name only and said, yeah. And some of them said, Hey, you're going to report into the CEO. Some of them, two years later, haven't seen hide nor tail of the CEO. (laughs) Haven't met with them, haven't done anything. So, you know, it, it just, it's all about what are you doing to create systemic change, sustaining change within your organization. And are you sticking to it? And, and um. And not acting like you know, oh, this is the next n- next toy that I can play with and 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 when you get bored, put it in the closet and put it away and that's kind of what what uh and what we've seen in some organizations, not all, and in some organizations that they have made true on their on their commitments to make a change within their respective organizations and also
0: externally you know it's it's interesting, like to your point, mm-hmm. I recall. You know, Living Corp has been around since 2018, so not some uh, long-standing institution. But we we've, we've seen like a few different things. So it was interesting. We created this space, this company, like about just a couple short years before the murder of George Floyd, and so we were seeing as we started. And the whole goal from the beginning was not to necessarily be like how how can we make a billion dollars. It Was about how can we center and amplify Black and Brown voices mm-hmm. at work. And but it was so interesting because while we were really getting started, we were seeing companies divest from DEI because for a bunch of oh, our stock prices down. So, okay, we're going to, everything that's non-revenue generating, we're going to let it go. And I remember there were a couple brands that I'm not going to say on this particular interview, because now we get too big. So I can't, I can't put brands on blast like I used to as much, but I'm saying there were some brands, i tell you offline, um, who had this whole di- group, diversity inclusion department that they were slashing. And then George Floyd got murdered and they literally started just hiring people back. Right. Um, They had commitments that they were making. Um, And then, you know, so it's, it's interesting and and you're absolutely right. Like not every single company, but there've been a lot of really big names out there making large multi-year commitments that you've heard nothing about since, since it made that splash on Forbes Mm -hmm. or fortune or wherever the case is. We heard nothing about it. In fact, there's some organizations where they they make these commitments and then the, the consulting firms or the people that they hired to really help execute those commitments time are gone. Mm-hmm. So it's just like what you know, what's really going on? Um now look, I would be remiss, you know, I like come over here, talk a little bit about um your journey, your history, what you've seen. Um the fact that you are um you're the head of diversity inclusion, um, the Center of Excellence at Merck. Huge organization, global brand. Talk to me about what you've been most proud of when it comes to, you know what? No, because I'm actually going to, I'm going to get even even more real. When it comes to black and brown employees at Merck mm-hmm. and their experiences, what are the ways that you believe they should know that they are supported if they? If they do not feel like they're getting the career support that they need, the advocacy sponsorship that they need, um, and just the overall just experience and sense of belonging they need, what are the what what points of evidence would you direct them to to say, "Hey, here's what we have for you, and here's what we're doing"? And if the answer is we have a lot of places to grow, I take that too, but I really want to get to the practical because mm-hmm. a lot of times, to your point, um, and some of the things you alluded to earlier, you know, we we use a lot of fluffy language in this space. And yeah, a lot of these DNI roles are fixtures. Like they're, they're not really mobilized and empowered to do anything. Um, and so you have folks who look like us who sit in these positions that you sit. And, and I, as a, like, as a millennial, um, black man, I, oh, I'm excited. Cause I, you know, you assume this person really, they get, they get me, they get it. But in reality, you know, all skin folk, and kin folk. So what does it really look like? You know, practically speaking, um, for Black and Brown, historically marginalized, queer, disabled, women—like, what does it look like for employees looking for the support that they need at Merck? What What would you point to to say, "Hey, here's what we're doing for y'all"?
2: Yeah, so you're gonna look at um, a, a few things. So, I I say that there are four areas that any company that we focus in. But any company should be focused in if they're truly creating an environment in a a holistic culture. So you talked about black and brown employees, but, but, you know, across the spectrum, anyone, you look for a couple of things. So in the people space, are they transparent with their numbers of representation? And so if you go to the corporate responsibility report, annual report, public, every company does one every year we call ours the ESG progress report, but we have been reporting our representation numbers since 2011 in our uh, corporate responsibility or ESG progress report. And then over the last couple of years, three or four years, we not only report it in aggregate as in the United States, women globally, but um, in aggregate, so all underrepresented ethnic groups, all Of people of color in the United States, we started separating it out. So we report out on Black, Asian, Pan-Asian, and uh, Latino and Hispanic. So you can see the numbers because especially you don't want it skewed if you have a large population of one group and then the small population of the others and you mask it by putting it all together. So we report that information. We've been reporting that information over the last few years, disaggregating it. But um, we also report new hires, what does that look like, representation, promotions over the year, what does it look like on our board, our senior level, so the senior executive, um, people managers, et cetera. So you look at your, how transparent is your organization around that? Because when, when you do that, you've made, you've in essence made a commitment that you're going to be transparent and and we're going to try to make progress because it doesn't look good if you're reporting the numbers and they're going down, right? So that's one thing you can look at. A second thing is, um, and and many, many many, um, organizations don't report representation numbers, actual numbers and trending. Many don't, if you look at their corporate responsibility reports. The second thing around around representation would be um, how so let me just go to culture around culture, how are they creating an inclusive culture for their employees. Do they have employee resource groups, is there a black one, is there a Latino and Hispanic one, is there women, you know how many do they have, how are they empowered. What are the senior leaders saying in town halls. Right? Are they talking about diversity and inclusion? Are they talking about inc- accomplishments? Are they c- talking about um, different different aspects of it, or is it just silent? Does your company have an a, all employee opinion survey? Are they asking the questions around the culture, around engagement, around inclusion, and then are they feeding that information back to their employees? So when we we have uh, opinion sur- employee opinion surveys. And I cut the data every which way you can. Um, I look at it male versus female. I look at it by generations. I look at it by race and ethnicity in the United States. I look at it by country, regions. I look at it all kinds of different ways. Those that are members of employee resource groups, that are those that are not members of employee resource groups, to see where there are differences and where um, one community of employees looks at the culture differently than the other. and. And we, sh- and we talk about that information, we share it, and, and we try to close gaps um, and say, because what you want to see is, for example, male, female, you want to see the scores looking the same, the likes, the dislikes, and everything. If you start to, if you see discrepancies, then you know that you have a, a, a gender uh, equality gap, okay? Do they do pay equity analysis in your company? Right. Are they looking to see to make sure that there's equity when it comes to um, pay and compensation and not just gender, but also race and ethnicity? Um, um, and so those are things around culture, around your business. How are they integrating DEI and i into your business? Do your marketing strategies encompass a, a, a diversity and inclusion lens? Are they trying to create marketing strategies for customers that look and look all spe- the whole spectrum of of the dimensions of diversity, or are they really targeting just you know a white male forty to sixty years old or whatever? Are they truly targeting a a, a, um, a diverse customer base as an example? Um, and then externally, the world how are how is your company showing up at, to those things that matter to the world? In our space, it's health equity and patient equity, but how how are they showing up? Um, uh, do they speak out on, on different social issues and things like that? So those are the four areas that I would say your people, your culture, your business in the world to really look and see if they truly are embracing diversity. And in your community, you, you can even be take that and take it to the next level and look at through the lens of of your community and, and your dimension of diversity. You know, the images on on your um company's website both internally and externally do they show people of all different races backgrounds and cultures and everything and very importantly do the pictures and images match the reflection of the diversity that exists in the employee base because you know there's a lot of perpetrating going on too you get those stock photos of different people and you don't even have that inside the company so
0: celeste when i tell you just last week some brand reached out to me talking about can you Spotlight our inclusion diversity um, executive. And I said, I looked at, I, I was like, I got a baby coming in like in a month, right? So I'm over here like, I'm not really doing all, I'm not looking deep in websites like I need to be right now because I'm distracted. Yeah, yeah. So I looked at their website and I saw black folks everywhere. So let's, so let's, they hang it, they, they, they popping out the side of the laptop screen. I'm like, <laughs> what is, look at all these black folks. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, whatever. And so we get on there and we're in the middle of the interview and um, we're she, this person's talking and, and she happens to be, you know, not as melanated as you or I, right? And uh-huh. so she's talking or whatever. And I'm just look while she's talking, I'm looking at the website and I'm looking at the executive team and it's nothing but white folks. <laughs> Everybody white. And now the pictures are in black and white, but they ain't fooling me because I'm a photographer too. So I was like, what? Oh, y'all are white. What is this? We got off the interview. I said, "Hey, I can't publish this. I'm not. I'm not publishing this. This is crazy." I said, "You." I said, "This is nothing that you said reflects is reflected in like your actual team and your leadership. This is crazy. You hit me up for free. ask me to promote you. You white? Yeah. <laughs> what? This is crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. So anyway, uh, I hear you. Yep. It, it's I mean, the, you it's the it's
2: the dis, it's the
0: it's the dishonesty of yeah, it that makes yeah, me mad. Yes. Yeah. And and
2: that's you know going back to what I said earlier. In my conversation about why I was hesitant to take the job for years and to be considered as a successor for years is because of that. It's you know basically, are are we for real? Are we for real? And and it's not just it's 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 my my value system. And what's important to me is me through you know my faith the eyes of my children and being able to to say with conviction that we have come a long way i'm proud of some of the work that we've been able to do but we have work to do and i think any company that that is basically saying oh you know we're we've arrived there's no organization that has quote unquote arrived there's no organization that is everything that it can be because it is a journey and you, you know, the destination is such where it's constantly moving. Who would have thought in the 1970s that in the 1920s, in the 2020s, that we would be where we are from a DEI perspective, right? We've come a long way, yes, we have, but but our world is evolving, right? Each with each generation that comes in, each generation is much more diverse. Their ideas, their beliefs, their perspectives are more, um, I, you know, it, it, the perspectives are so different. They're so, and what I mean by different is different perspectives and different communities of people. The intersectionality of individuals, right? We're not all just one thing. You know, I'm a black, straight female who's a mother, who's this, who's that. We're The intersectionality of, of all of us is such that um, you can't say that you, you've gotten there when it comes to DE&I, because the minute you think you, you've you gotten there, something else comes up, a new challenge, a new issue, a new identity of people and individuals that you have to find out and say, okay, well, what's this about? Tell me about you. Tell me about what you value. Tell me about you know those in your community. And I tell you what, I'm Consistently learning day to day to day to day to day, and someone you know says, "Oh, Celeste, you know, blah 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 blah." Our next gen network, our our, uh, our our employee business resource group that focuses on the next generations coming into the work the workplace, they are constantly, constantly pushing the needle, you know, pushing me, pushing me, and pushing me. Is Celeste, you need to be doing this and that generation is hugely diverse hugely diverse. And you talk about, you know, gender fluidity, you talk about, you know, the LGBTQ plus community, you talk about um, um, just all the things that 40 years ago, no one even, you know, really thought about stuff like that, right? It's like, what do you mean, you know, I got to say my pronouns? Look at me. But, you know, you know, like, this stuff is this, this DEI and how it's evolving is only going to get amplified with generations to come. So, I tell companies, you know, it's like, okay, I tell the individuals within our organization, there, you know, there's always going to be that five percent or whatever percent that they just don't, they don't subscribe to DEI, they don't believe in it, and they just, for whatever reason, right? And that's okay. I, you're not going to be able to change management methodologies. Any methodology says you're not going to be able to change everybody, right? And so what I say is, okay, I know I may not change you. That's okay. But you better not get in my way. You can have your values and your beliefs, but you better not get in my way with the work that we're trying to do, all of the diversity ambassadors within our organization and the work that we're trying to do in creating the culture that we want to see.
0: Amen. Now, look, um, I told you I was going to honor your time because you have a bunch of different offices you got to fly back and <laughs> forth to, and I respect that. Okay, so um getting to you know one of the reasons that you were also here to talk about your book, how to be a diversity inclusion ambassador. I'm not gonna get into all the details of the book. I want everybody to know to click the link in the show notes, buy the book today. So everybody, stop. All right, pull over, put your hazards on. All right, pull all the way in, all the way in. So keep space on the shoulder because you don't want it. It's careful. Be careful. Then open your phone, scroll to the bottom, you'll see a link at the bottom, click the link. All right, now, with that being said, (laughs) um, with with how to be a diversity inclusion ambassador, ambassadorship is important, it's critical in terms of how we navigate and work in this global economy and global community, as well as our corporate community, corporate and other professional, extended professional communities. I'm curious, what is the role of an executive in sponsoring a culture of ambassadorship? Right. I think and I ask I frame that question that way, because a lot of times when we talk about diversity, inclusion, we frame everything from a grassroots perspective. And I'm going to say this is grassroots has its space and it's important. And that's how a lot of change happens. I've also noticed that if I think about this, this last couple years around George Floyd, is that real change, especially in corporate context, it happens when grassroots movements coordinate with corporate leadership. So talk to me about how these things come together for actual change.
2: Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Um, so the senior leaders, you know, those that are senior leaders and, and you have you know, large organizations within your company, you have to make sure that you are um, very clear about your expectations of the people in your organization <clears throat> at all levels. What your vision is around creating a more diverse and inclusive work environment, what your expectations are. You have to have a strategy in place, work with your leadership team to put the strategy in place with clear outcomes and communicate those outcomes. What are you aspiring to get to? What are those outcomes that you're looking for? So you communicate that. um, and, And then you, very importantly, it's not just words, You communicate it, but you role model the behaviors. You role model it. And there's going to come times when you got to make these hard decisions. It's either this or this. And you have to make sure that you know that everyone is watching you. It's not necessarily all the things that you're saying, but it's what you do. So you're role modeling the behaviors. When it comes to the decisions that you're making, you do it with intentionality. And you basically say, if you have to make a decision that that says oh well, i have to go in this direction you're very clear about it and you also say that we are not we're not abandoning de and i but we're going to be doing this and then we're going to do this and we're going to you know do this but you have to be very clear and intentional in your communications and in your actions and very clear with your management teams that they know what's expected of them when it comes to leading their teams around what your expectations are around DE&I, being very, very clear about it. And and just the example about the grassroots and the leadership, they do need to be aligned. And I'll give you just a quick example. When I first uh, came into this role eight years ago, um, our employee business resource groups were, you know, they were doing good, good things at the grassroots level, but there was no alignment. And so what I did was I sort of changed the infrastructure a bit created an executive leadership council of our employee business resource groups so the global leaders of our 10 ebrgs and basically they formed the leadership team of the employee business resource groups and they had i aligned them to the D, the company's dei strategy and and when that happened i tell you it was powerful it was powerful cuz that empowerment Really started to take hold in our employees, and we grew from having a few Employee Business Resource Groups uh, eight years ago in the U.S. and mainly on the on the East Coast, in the in the South a little bit with our manufacturing plants, to growing exponentially all over the world, having you know close to 200 chapters of EBRGs all over the world. 20,000 of our 67,000 employees are. Active members of our employee business resource group. So, it, it, when you align it, you get the support of the of the the leadership. They understand the company strategy. They understand their role. The uh, the the employees understand. In this case, the employee resource groups understood their role in driving the strategy. So, all of the ships in the fleet are headed in the same direction down the down the ocean, down the river, and um, that's what you want. You don't want all of the ships. Go going in different directions and clogging up the the river and you can't get anything done and i tell you that is powerful it is so powerful to see that happening
0: celeste this has been a pleasure you know what i mean i i appreciate you i'll say this you know um it's nice having somebody on the show you know and, it, and i love all of our guests uh, they're incredible except for that one we didn't air that episode i told you about that already now, don't come on here y'all with all these black folks thinking you're going and y'all not having no uh black leadership then you'll come on live in corporate that's crazy that's crazy anyway i appreciate you is my point I didn't put on any airs so just had a real good conversation i'm excited about the book how to be a diversity and inclusion ambassador i appreciate this discussion and i'm excited about the work that you're continuing to lead with Merck. before we let you go any shout outs to parting words
2: oh parting words um i want to thank all of those people who pre-ordered the book thank you thank you thank you for your support um come on now i i want to thank all of you guys for your support and and just you know what last thing i'll say is Be the change that you want to see in your organization. Everybody has a role that they have to play. You can't just keep looking up and around and saying, well, why aren't they doing something? Why aren't they doing something? You have to do something. Just a little thing. You don't have to boil the ocean, but just boil two or three people around you, and they'll boil some people, and they'll boil some people, and then, hey, then you'll see the ocean be boiled. So that's basically kind of the last thing that I want to say.
0: I love it. Uh, Celeste? It's been a pleasure. Continue to friend of the show. Hope to see you back again soon. Okay.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Goodbye. And we're back. Listen, uh, Celeste Warren, your friend of the show. Hope to see you again. You're welcome back anytime. Shout out to your book, how to be a diversity and inclusion ambassador, everyone's role in helping all feel accepted, engaged and valued. I also want to reinforce that change does not happen in these corporate capitalistic contexts without coordination between grassroots types of strategies and efforts and the executive leadership. OK, it just doesn't. It's impossible. They both have to work together. Yeah, you're seeing different executives right now making headlines because they want to check Zoom logs on Fridays or look at badge scans and, you know, this entire idea of uh, calling folks lazy or implying that they're lazy because they're not giving you free labor. Listen, that stuff is not going to survive, right? Those folks are going away. And that way of thinking and working is going the way of the dinosaur, irrespective of how much folks want to whine about it. It doesn't matter. Okay. Um, the world is changing. The future of work is here and it is going to get even more futuristic. Okay. So it's important that we realize, and what's better, frankly, it's just, it's a, it would be a better transition if we could collaborate, but this next generation of worker is going to be, is they, they're not going to be, they are more diverse, more politically engaged, and more socially active than the generations before. And they're not going to take working themselves to the bone in a late stage capitalist society. And they're not going to take being mistreated on top of that. Right. Cause, and I think that's the other piece too is historically we've seen diversity and inclusion and like workplace experience as like two different realms, but diversity and inclusion belonging and workplace experience all come together like they go hand in hand they're part of the same space if you if someone doesn't feel that they're being treated equitably at work they're also not going to have a good workplace experience anywho i appreciate you thank you so much for rocking with living corporate make sure to give us five stars tell your friend about us tell your enemies about us tell your co-workers about us tell your boss about us and your boss's boss your next skip level just be like hey have you heard of living corporate you know what i'm saying drop us around, you know, let folks know we outside and until next time y'all this has been Zach, peace
1: Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC our logo was designed by David Dawkins our theme music was produced by Ken Brown additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.
0: Living Corporate is brought to you by Textio. Today's top talent is everywhere, representing everyone, and our work environment should reflect the level of inclusion to meet that standard. Textio achieves this in building more equitable company cultures through the language we use in our job postings. That culture is formed one hire at a time, making the words we use to reach more diverse candidates all the more important. Our advanced language insights and employer brand content is what drives our mission of inclusion. Through our industry-leading application of artificial intelligence and machine learning, we're able to widen companies' reach in finding and building upon the very diverse talent that empowers a culture of belonging. Every door should be open to every qualified job seeker. Again, that's Textio.